So just as a, a quick reminder of kind of why we're here, I think, a quick scan of the room, I think everyone's been here for at least one lesson, but it's not going to hurt us to just kind of review what we're doing in the Psalms of Ascent. Remember, this is a prelude to the, the primary worship service. That's what Sunday school is. It's the way I view it. It's kind of a time to come in and to get ourselves settled, to get our hearts oriented in the right direction before we ascend into the primary worship service over there. We come into the presence of God and we worship in that way. The Psalms of Ascent functioned in that same way. Whenever the pilgrims were making their trip to Jerusalem to their primary worship service three times a year, they would be singing these things to get their hearts right, to remind themselves of where they were going and the God that they were going to worship and how he is their help, how he is going to be there for them. He's going to lead them along the way. And so we're going to use these psalms in, in exactly the same way. This is our, our playlist for our road trip to Zion, our weekly Zion that we come to every week today. So brief review on where we've been on our journey so far. We've covered four of these psalms. And starting in Psalm 120, we started out in a low place there. We needed deliverance. We needed deliverance from those who wished to do harm to God's people. And then in Psalm 121, Psalm 20, 121 realizes our help and its source. Remember, the Lord is our keeper. The one who made heaven and earth is going to help us. Is not going to let his people perish. Then last week we started with, I'm sorry, Psalm 122 comes, yeah, that last week, Psalm 122 comes, and then we've already arrived in Jerusalem. So three songs in, we're in Jerusalem. Psalm 122 extols God's great city. 122 is really all about Jerusalem. Remember, the Lord is there. His people are there. And this is where we want to be. This is where his people want to be. They want to be in Zion. They want to be in Jerusalem. So we're going to pray for her peace. We're going to pray for her unity. And we're going to seek the good of the brethren there. That's what Psalm 122 is about. And 123 then expresses how the people of God maintain this longing gaze for the beauty and the security and the leadership of the Lord. Remember, this is about the eyes. It was looking to the Lord, looking to his security and, and his beauty and his leadership, not to anything within us. The soul was, was worn down again by evildoers in 123, but you cry out to God for mercy. Remember this refrain was in there, have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. It was in there three times. So that God is faithful to show mercy to his brokenhearted children. That's what 123 was all about. And then we made a connection to Hebrews chapter 12 from Psalm 123. So that's where we've been. And remember, each of these, we're singing these as we ascend in Jerusalem, but also each of these builds upon each other. That's, kinda, that's why I'm reviewing each, each one as we go the next week. So next week I'll review those and then I'll review what we did today. So they're, they're building up here. We're ascending as we're singing the songs the same way we're ascending into God's worship here. So on to our psalms today then. We're doing Psalms 124 and 125. First, Psalm 124. Let's read it together. Psalm 124. A song of ascents of David. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as a prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. So Psalm of Ascent, 
obviously. This is the second one that is explicitly penned by David back over in 122, which we covered last week. That was the first one penned by David. It's explicitly stated as David the author. And this one's the same way. This psalm is a, it's a psalm of thanksgiving. Celebrates an occasion where the Lord has delivered in some time of war. If you look at verses 1 and 2, and then down at verse 8, let's read those together with skipping the ones in the middle. So 1 and 2, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, now skip down to verse 8, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. So these kind of provide like this bookend here, the bookends for the rest of the psalm. These verses are really kind of saying the same thing here. The first two verses are saying this in the negative sense. So if the Lord had not been there, if the Lord had not been there, if he had not been our help, and then verse 8 comes back and says, but our help is in the name of the Lord. So we got this, this bookend here relaying the same ideas. Verse 8 is very positive because the Lord is there to help. Verses 1 and 2 are negative, imagining if the Lord had not been there to help. Then the middle of the psalm goes through these vivid metaphorical scenes which imagine what would have happened if the divine warrior was not fighting for the cause of Israel. It says there, you know, the, the enemy would have, been, would have been victorious. There would have been a chaos of a flood and a raging river, river that would have swept over us. We talked about this whenever we went through Jonah uh, about a year ago, you know, the, the concept of, of water was really troubling for Israelites. Water was not like this calming thing for ancient Israel. Water represented chaos and um, danger and things like that. So it's the same thing here. If God would have not been looking over them, there would have been all this chaos represented by flooding and water. Or we would have been like prey to an animal. Been like prey to an animal, but, but we have escaped like a bird that has been trapped by a fowler. So the one who made heaven and earth has given us deliverance here. Our help is in the name of the Lord. The blessed relief is very intense here. You cannot help but praise God for allowing his divine providence to smile down upon us. We've got all these troubles. If God had not been on our side. All of these troubles are going to come. All of them are going to come. But our help is in the name of the Lord, the covenant God of Israel who made heaven and earth and his smiling providence upon us. So as mid, mid-21st mid century people living in Mississippi specifically, it's really hard for us to realize how common war has been throughout human history. This is, war has really been the norm throughout human history. You know, whether it's local or more regional or even global conflicts, war has been very normal throughout human history. It's a threat that we can't ever really fully escape from until Jesus returns. It's very true. And we should be thankful that we have been spared for war, at least right now, but it really isn't a threat that really stays constant on our minds usually, at least where we are in the time that we live in. Like I said, this is not the norm for most of human history. Remember, David was a man of war. Remember, the psalm is, is written by David. David was a man of war. This is explicitly stated in the Bible many times. All of his wars, all of his, as far as I can remember, most of his wars at least were holy wars. They were wars that... God had told him to fight, but David was a man of war, and war was just a normality for that time period. He was very well acquainted with battle. He was a brilliant tactician. Remember, David knew what he was doing when he was fighting. But he recognizes that he is merely performing things on the Lord's behalf. None of the victories were primarily because of David. You'll see that in David's responses to all of his wars that he fought. 
Some people think, and most of the commentaries that are read on this, think that David wrote this psalm immediately after he was coronated at Hebron. Remember, before David comes to Jerusalem, he's crowned king of Israel at Hebron first, while Saul is still king. And then later on, when he's going into Jerusalem, Jerusalem is still held by the Jebusites. Israel doesn't have Jerusalem yet. So David's crowned king at Hebron. And immediately after this, the Philistines try to attack him, but they're defeated. And we don't really we don't know for sure that the psalm was, was penned after that occasion, but it's possible. It kind of fits. And that's that's kind of one of the, the beautiful things about most of the Psalms. And most most of the Psalms, there's some counterexamples to this, you get in some of them you get very descriptive, you know, headers of what they were written for, like Psalm fifty one. Or the one we looked at a couple of weeks ago, uh, Psalm 36, I believe, when he wrote it in response to Doeg, the Edomite, ratting him out. Um, but most of the psalms are just very, very generic as far as when, when they were penned. And that's, that's one of the, the beautiful things about this is because you don't have to say, well, David wrote this for this specific occasion. It doesn't mean anything to me. Well, that's not true. These can be applied to all of our lives, too. They're, they're very comforting for us that, that God gave this in a context that they can apply to his people throughout the rest of history, even after they were written. But in any case, after this battle with the Philistines and after many of David's other battles, we're told that he was merely doing what the Lord had commanded him. David says he, he could take no credit. The victory was God's. He says this explicitly stated in many, many places. And the same idea is repeated all throughout the Old Testament. Here's a, a battle cry that's commanded to be spoken to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 20. This is whenever they, they're going up against the, the enemies that surround them. I think in this context might be the Moabites. But they were supposed to, this was going to be their battle cry whenever they go in, into battle. It says, For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. So that was their, their battle cry as the warriors were fighting. Then the song, this is a song that Jephthah and Samson sing after their victories in the book of Judges. This is what they say. They say the same thing. The Lord gave them into my hand. After their victories, that's what they say. Then if you go look at all the kingship psalms, it makes it clear that the salvation that is expected and the salvation that is confident and the salvation that is sure to be brought about for the king specifically about David or Solomon, whoever the king is that it's written about, and ultimately about Jesus, we know that this is carried out by God. And this is nothing to do with the kings themselves. It's the victories are brought by God. And then in Psalm 108, verse 13, it says this, With God we shall do valiantly. It's he who will tread down our foes. And then in our New Testament context, in the New Covenant era, since the coming of the Messiah... Our battleground has shifted from the physical realm to the spiritual. We don't have the physical battles to fight anymore like are written about in the Old Testament. It's very clear in the New Testament that the battleground has shifted to the spiritual. That's why the whole armor of God is spiritual armor. But that, that doesn't make the Holy Spirit's promise to us that's relayed to Paul, through Paul, in Romans 8.31 less comforting. The comfort is infinite. The comfort's Eternal, the comfort is everlasting. Where Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's the same thing the psalm is saying here. The psalm opens up, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. 
Then it ends, our help is in the name of the Lord. Paul saying the same thing here. If God is for us, who can be against us? But the battlefield has shifted. Fighting spiritual battles, not just physical ones. A few years ago, when I taught my very first Sunday school series through the book of Esther, one of the major themes that we saw throughout that book was the theme of divine providence. It's kind of scanning right now. It's probably, I don't know, maybe half of y'all were in there. Something like that. Two-thirds or so. Not everyone was in there. But the major theme throughout that whole whole series, that 12-week series, was of divine providence. How, how God works out everything. How he is actively involved in every single interaction. The past, the present, and the future. It's incredible to think about. At any given second, there are trillions, quadrillions, quintillions, who knows how many specific interactions there are. God divinely controls every one of them. R.C. Sproul once said, there has never been a rogue molecule in the history of the universe. Now this psalm, this psalm right here, 124, takes an imaginative stroll through the, the contrapositive of divine providence. What if God's hand had not been guiding us? Well, the psalm kind of answered that. We are to be most pitied. If he were to move, remove his divine protection for even a millisecond, we all would be doomed. David agrees with that. We agree with that. But thank God that is not true because it ends. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. So that, that is a great comfort to us when we are struggling. If our circumstances are out of control or even if our problems are caused by our own sin, We can rest assured that God, with his sweet but sometimes bitter providence, will lead us to where he intends us to go. He's not going to let his people just wallow. He's not going to abandon his people. Through his divine providence, all the things are going to work out for our good. God is for us who can be against us. This can be really hard to see in the moment, especially in moments of despair. But back to Esther. That's really one of the, the beautiful things about the book of Esther. So if you can remember back then... Whenever we were going through that, or if you weren't around for the lessons, I'll give, you, I'll give you a spoiler. God is nowhere to be found in the book of Esther. Well, he's never explicitly mentioned. The name of God is nowhere in there in any of his covenant names or generic names. There are not any sorts of, even hints of religion from any of the Jewish people that are in the book of Esther. So God's not there anywhere. But it's very clear from the narrative that, that develops that these series of events absolutely had to be orchestrated by a higher power. It had to be ordered in God's divine providence. And so that same thing is, is true today. It's true today. If God is seemingly absent, he's not. Same thing in Esther. God seemed to be absent there, but he's not absent. So do not fear if you are in his covenant family. God is here. God is indeed blessing you with his divine providence. And he is working, thing out, working things out for your good. So, blessed be the Lord indeed. Blessed be the Lord indeed. That's where our help comes from. So let's sing to our great God who made heaven and earth. Everybody got one? Psalm 124. We're going to sing this to the tune of Jesus, the very thought of thee. Mm-hmm.
us a lead in, and we'll start. read it together. Psalm 125, a song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteousness, to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands and do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. So this psalm is is similar to 122. If you remember last week, last week, yeah, last week we looked at Psalm 122, first first of all. And it's it's very similar to that, actually, in that it it sings praises about Jerusalem and, and Mount Zion. So now this, this psalm here, 125, is now using some similes and some metaphors 
to describe how believers are similar to the security provided by Mount Zion. In verse, back in verse 1, again, it says, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, cannot be moved, but abides forever. Now, it's bring forth brings forth that idea of the perseverance of the saints that we looked at again back uh, in 121, when the Lord was our keeper, the Lord was going to keep us. It's the same way here. The, those who trust in the Lord cannot be moved. It's like Mount Zion. Mount Zion abides forever. They're going to abide forever too. And then the same with verse 2 there. Verse 2, we know this is, this is why. This is why they're going to abide. This is why they cannot be moved. Because the Lord surrounds his people. It's not anything that they're doing. It's the Lord that surrounds his people. So in, in verse 2, just a, a bit about kind of the topography of Mount Zion and Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was was above most of the other places of Israel. But even Mount Zion itself was like the highest hill in Jerusalem. And then Mount Zion or Jerusalem, you had all of these hills that were a bit taller. So it was kind of like in a mountain, but it was like a valley in a mountain. So you can see why this provided some sort of, some sort of security here because you had to, there's all these defenses. If anyone was going to attack it, they'd first have to climb the mountains. But then there's all these mountains all around. So Jerusalem's like built by this natural wall almost here. So just like Jerusalem is surrounded by all these secure mountains, the Lord surrounds his people and provides them security. That's why they can't be moved, because they're kept by the Lord. He's their keeper. And then see what's going on in verse 3. Verse 3 says, For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. This is the same thing that we talked about last week in regards to the major threat to Jerusalem. Remember back in Psalm 122, it says, let's see. Um, <laughs> yeah, peace be within your walls in verse 7 and 122 and security within your towers. Remember, we made the point that the major threat to Jerusalem was, was not from the outside. Sure, they had the threats from the outside, from their from the people, from the nations that were around them that were going to do the physical violence. But the main threat to Jerusalem was from within. May peace be within your walls. And it's the same thing here, too. For the scepter of, of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. The main danger to Jerusalem, again, comes from within. The major threat comes from within the walls of Jerusalem itself. And in this specific sense, in this verse, if the wicked ascend to the throne, then this is what's going to bring about Jerusalem's destruction. Remember here, the scepter of wickedness shall not rest in the land allotted to the righteous. So it's the warning here. If the wicked get on the throne, then that's when Jerusalem is really in trouble. And if you've ever read the book of 2 Kings or 2 Chronicles, you know that this is true. Right? That's exactly what happens. It's when all the wicked kings come in that God says, all right, I'll take my hand of protection from upon you. Assyria's going to come. Babylon's going to come. Egypt's going to come. They're going to carry you away. You're going to be torn out of the land because the evil kings are leading the people to do what's evil. So wicked rulers are going to ruin God's chosen nation. But the end of verse 3 says, the righteous cannot let this be. They must not let this be. They should not do wrong. They should act justly. They should do this in the confidence that God will not let the unrighteous rule over his people forever. Now, Christians can rejoice that God raised Jesus to the throne of David to prove this true. 
So what, we have a true, we have a righteous, we have a just king that's sitting on David's throne forever and ever that cannot be moved. So we have eternal protection now, like the mountains of Jerusalem, because Jesus is the king. The unrighteous, they might have ascended the throne for a little bit, but they were always doomed to fail because the Messiah was coming. The true king was coming, the true anointed one, the one that was forever meant to sit on David's throne. And then in verses 4 and 5, the psalm closes with a short prayer of confidence. We pray and we know that the Lord will do good to those who are upright in heart. We know this because this is part of God's character. This is part of his very nature. But also, as part of his nature, he cannot turn aside and just excuse evil. The Lord's going to lead them away. Turn aside to those who do crooked things. But the Lord is going to do good to those who are upright in heart. These are both parts of his nature. Those who are not upright in heart, though, will be led away to a place that Jesus says there's going to be weeping, there's going to be gnashing of teeth, the flame is never going to be quenched, and the worm never dies. In other words, the psalmist here is praying for the Lord to lift up the righteous, to partake in the glory of the kingdom, Remember, back in verse 3, you're talking about the scepter here to the king. They're supposed to partake in the glory of the kingdom. God's going to do them good here. But he's going to purge those who do not belong in the kingdom. And this, this is when true peace comes upon the community. It ends with peace be upon Israel. But peace is going to be upon Israel because the good... God is going to do good to those who are upright in heart, but he's going to purge the evil away. The peace cannot come until evil is purged. This is, what, this is what they're praying for. This is where the peace comes from. When the gathering is pure, when the bride is adorned in white to be presented to her bridegroom, the king. This is where peace comes from. So isn't, isn't that what we are working towards as a church universal? I would think so. I would hope so. We do wait patiently for Jesus to return. But until then, this here, looking at today, this is our heaven on earth. This is where we are protected on every side by the mountains. This is the one and the only institution that God has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against. The church is the only thing that God has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against. This is the protection that is promised here in verses 1 and 2. It's for the church. This body is where your ultimate eternal security is. So, you should pray for her purity. You should pray for her safety. You should pray for God to bless her people that are upright in heart. Upright in heart because we have the righteousness of Jesus applied to us. God has promised to bless us through him. And should pray for that. You should also pray, like this psalm says here, you should pray that false teachers and evildoers are going to be thrown out until they repent. And lastly, you should pray for peace to be upon Israel. Because the church is the true Israel. The church is the true ultimate Israel. That's what it was looking forward to. So you should pray for her peace. Pray for her unity. Pray for her purity. Pray for her security. And rest assured that God will ultimately bring all those things about because in the end, Jesus wants to present himself with a pure bride. That's why we're here. That's what the church is. It's his bride. 
Last week, we made a connection between Psalm 123 and Hebrews 12, verse 2. We're going to go back to Hebrews 12 again right now, but we're going to do a different context. Remember last week, Psalm 123, we, we started out with, I lift my eyes to you, then Hebrews 12 you know, we made the connection looking to Jesus, that concept of looking to one who we lift our eyes to, who we should gaze upon. And then we brought it back, brought it back home at the end of, of one or the end of verse one of 123. You are enthroned in the heavens and that Jesus is on the throne in heaven. That was verse 12, verse two. Where now we're going to bring it back, bring Hebrews 12 into the context of Psalm 125. We're going, to go, we're going to go to Mount Zion in Jerusalem. We're headed there. We're headed there right now, but we're heading there in an even better way. So Hebrews 12, after declaring the greatness of Jesus and then exhorting the reader not to grow weary, here's what we have starting at verse 18 of Hebrews chapter 12. So verse 18 of Hebrews chapter 12 We're going to read through verse 24, specifically pay attention to verses 22 and 23. Okay, starting with verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. That's a terrifying description, first of all, right? For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Okay, so the author of Hebrews is making a point here. This is the old covenant. It was terrifying. Okay, the old covenant was terrifying. But verse 22, this is the new covenant. This is the church that he's talking to right now. All right. But you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering. Now we've got a good thing. Now we've got what the people are working towards in the Psalms of Ascent. Verse 23, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. That word back there in verse 23, assembly, it's translated in the ESV. Somebody else got another version? What's that word translated? It's still assembly in other ways. Verse verse 23. Yeah, church. Church is the the other way you could translate that. So here, it's talking about the church. Verse 22 again, you come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's what it's working towards. It's what the Psalms are singing about. It was, those were written towards a physical Jerusalem, but they were pointing to something better, a covenant that's better, a covenant that involved a spiritual people, the church, us. That's why we're here. We're here in Jerusalem. We're here in Mount Zion. New covenant is better than what the psalmist is singing about in 125. He was seeing something dimly lit that we have the full revelation of. The church is Israel, and we worship in a heavenly Jerusalem. So why are we able to do this? It's because our righteous king, going back to verse 3, our righteous king is on his throne forever. And that's why we're here today. We're here in the kingdom. We're here to exalt this righteous king. 
We're here to celebrate His resurrection and His ascension to the throne where He now sits. He is the one who brings peace to Israel. He's the one that brings peace to the church, His bride. So, let's worship Him in song. Psalm 125, singing this to the tune of Be Thou My Vision. Oh.